Hi guys, welcome to another episode of the Understanding Politics podcast. Uh, today we have a special guest with us, uh, Daniel Quagliana. Hello. He is a student with us at SUNY Fredonia, and he also um, worked on uh, Kathy Hochul's campaign last summer for governor. So we're really excited to have him here to talk about the New York State budget. So first thing we wanted to step into was kind of the main uh, detail of the plan. This was, uh, we compromised this research doc from the New York uh, Times, the New York Post, a um, couple of other credible local papers. So the details we first have is uh, $3 billion to the MTA to cover revenue shortcomings that have mainly happened because of, you know, COVID. A lot of people have been leaving the city or a lot of people have been working hybrid slash remote. So there's been a downturn in ride in riders. So she's going to also pay for it too by raising payroll taxes for downstate businesses, which my humble opinion, I think it's a really good thing, but she also wants to raise the uh, single ride rate from 275 to three. Um, I don't know. I think I think I'm pretty okay with that one raise because it's single ride. So I mean, if you're buying like a single ride, you're not someone who lives in New York City um, for the long term. You're mostly a tourist. So again, I think that's a better tax. But again, it's kind of a piecemeal resolution. There's no real investment. Uh, we just wanted to plug, you know, Zoran Mwandani. He is a DSA member, but he has proposed an idea to fix the MTA to get the rides down to a six minute wait instead of 11 minutes. Um, and that will be paid for, you know, by taxing some of the richest New Yorkers. So I, I wonder what you think about this. Should we be taxing the rich more in New York state? Um, I kind of get the sense that this budget in particular is kind of a COVID recover, recovery plan. Yes, most things are more expensive. I do think that'll go down if not in the next budget, then in the one after that. But we just came out of COVID. Things are going to be more expensive. Mm. I mean, I for one think that uh, to to lean more into my my uh, personal beliefs, I think that we could tax the rich a little bit more in New York State. We do have a lot of people who are earning over a million dollars, um, and uh, not, not nothing severe, nothing huge, but just just a little bit more incrementalism on that front, I think, would be good. And especially with you know some of the other stuff in this budget proposal, like her uh, her idea about three percent tuition increase for SUNY and CUNY schools. That's I think there's a way better way to to uh, rectify that particular issue. But yeah, yeah, I mean. When I think about like MTA funding and stuff like that, we've seen in Boston, for example, Michelle Wu, who was endorsed by the Working Families Party, she's been able to make buses in Boston uh, free and uh, their transit system free. We've also seen too in uh, Kansas City, they have a free bus system. So it's been done before in a lot less uh, economically dynamic cities. So. I, I also get Cube's point too, where it's like we're recovering from COVID and it is kind of a, um, also too, we have to take into account with hybrid, with remote work. A lot of people can do New York City jobs in New Jersey, um, in other states, go go move to Connecticut or Massachusetts to avoid the the higher taxes, for example. And right. the, main, the main thing to me at the end of the day is the why, if you're if you're a rich person you have this much money too it's also like you don't you don't want to live like an hour out of new york city you know i mean i guess 
maybe this is kind of a generalization, but for the most part, like you love living in New York City, you love living in Greenwich Village, you're not gonna buy a freaking mega mansion in Connecticut, you know, to go live there. Mm -hmm. I mean, it just it just seems where whereas if you know you're someone who makes forty thousand dollars a year in New York City or something like that, you know, it I tend to think more about the artists in this situation, you know, how are they gonna survive, you know, having to pay instead of having to pay, you know, two hundred dollars a month or instead of if we made it free, you know, or for example, you know, education, which we'll get into now. I mean the Kathy Hochul wants to raise the cap on char raise the cap on charter schools in New York City, and uh, many working families party senators and reps have said it's a non-starter. Uh, for example, the head of the Judiciary Committee, Brad Holyman, who actually just uh, blocked Kathy Hochul's uh, judgeship, uh, Hector LaSalle, he said char charter schools are a non-starter. Same with John Liu, he's on the Judiciary Committee. Um, all the DSA members and the and the Assembly and the Senate have said it's a non-starter. So what do you guys think about this issue? I'm actually not as knowledgeable on this one as probably should be. <laughs> yeah. I mean, what do you what do you think, Alex? I think it's a recurring a recurring trend with this budget and Kathy Hochul as governor seems to uh, be this sort of the left and the right both get upset with her, her proposals, um, especially with this budget like that, the, the I hate to tell like a broken record, but the 3% increase on the um, SUNY tuition. Uh, but there's also good things in this budget and and I'm kind of trailing off a little bit, but you know, like the psychiatric beds, a thousand more of those. It's great. A billion for mental health. So we've got, hey, let's focus there, on, there's some, let's focus some good, on but first, because huh? what, what is the main argument from the left is that we're taking public money and we're investing it into private institutions. Yeah. So, what is, what is kind of the goal of public school here? Do we want, you know, when I think about charter schools from, you know, I think about it as, you know, it's like a short-term investment that will boost, you know, the educational opportunities of black communities. But over time, the, you, end up, you end up subsidizing richer communities more and more with these investments. And then over time, the public school that is there sees less investment, keeps crumbling, to the point where the public school doesn't have the same equal opportunity, which New York State has been taken to court before for having um, unequal opportunities in New York City. Most recently in 2019, there was a Supreme Court case that dealt with that. Um, it just it just seems like, you know, to me, it just seems like underfunding. But then again, we've seen, you know, incremental increases every year from the state and it's still not working. So. I'm also sympathetic to to where charter schools are trying to, you know, prove immediate results. And a lot of people, you know, are up in arms about, you know, trying to wait for a public school system that has kept failing and failing over again. So this is actually one of the issues where until very recently, I haven't seen both sides of it because I live in Williamsville in Western New York, which has one of the best public school systems in the state. So until very recently, until I came here and I met people who, you know, weren't from one of the best public school systems in the state, I never really understood the issue. Yeah. 
Yeah, I can relate to that too. I mean, I went to a small school, graduated with 17 kids in my class and I never, we never had, I mean, we didn't have a ton of high tech fancy stuff, but we had, we had what we needed. Um, But I mean, coming to college and meeting people from all sorts of different backgrounds, you kind of get a perspective about how school systems are uh, across the country and how it's, there are a lot of, you know, issues with underfunding and things like that. So, yeah, it's kind of weird, like coming from uh, Cortland, having like people who would live in in the suburbs more or less commute to Syracuse to work every day or commute to Ithaca for work every day and make, you know, six figures and be in the same school as people who lived in the trailer park. Um, but they they both had the same equal opportunity to education. That's what public schools are trying to do is equalize the funding out. And that's and that's what I think the mission, you know, has to be. Um, but yeah, I mean, we could we can move right into um, CUNY and SUNY. I know you have some opinions on that, Alex. <laughs> I yes, I mean, I've been talking, I've been weaseling weasel, that into all of my points so far because <laughs> that's I read this this New York Times article, and that's just the one thing that really was imprinted on my skull, and I'm just like, yeah. how could you even propose that? Like, okay, I understand logistically why, but it's like why would you propose that like what 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 sort of um backlash i don't know what you guys opinions are on it but i feel like that that's just something you're asking for backlash from it and it's just nobody would go for it i wonder like for example think about how many people go to suny and cuny schools every year like um do you guys would you guys even have an estimate probably like well, two, Let's look up. two million <laughs> Okay. But I mean, if that's like a $300, $400 increase for 1 million, 2 million students, think about like how much revenue that brings in. I mean, that's a, that's a complete flat tax. I mean, I under, I completely disagree with the policy, but I mean, if she wants to have a, a budget surplus from, for, of 25 billion for next year, which she wants to do, this, this is a perfect way to raise revenue. This is like a VAT tax in Europe. You know, everyone pays the same rate on their groceries. Everyone pays the same rate for public school. This is... Right, but it's a, it's a flat tax on college students. Yeah. Who just are the students. people who can't, you know, have the hardest time paying a flat tax. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, tuition... I don't, I don't know about you, but, you know, most of my money is going to, you know, paying for me to be here. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I'm... It's already people are already stretched thin paying for these price tuition prices, which have increased uh, tremendously, uh, not alongside like normal inflation in the past like 50 years. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, the only only reason I can afford to go here is because I'm an associate recipient, but I'm one of my friends isn't because his parents make just enough to not qualify for it. I don't even know what this 3% increase has been doing him. Yeah. 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 It's tough because like Michael, what you're saying is, yeah. I mean, the state having a budget surplus would be great, but how many people would that, uh, you know, it's taking money out of their pockets. They don't have, uh, it could uh, lead them to have to drop out of college in some cases, you know, yeah. An extra, an extra three hundred dollars a year for tuition. Couldn't they just? I'm not, I'm not picking that part up. Wouldn't they just add that to their loan? Um, 
they could three hundred dollars that they could still pay off. I mean, look here. Here's the argument I'll make: is that my family, you know, has saved up fifteen thousand, twenty thousand dollars for me to go to college and to be able to graduate debt free. You know without assistance of the state. So when you think about, you know, richer families or well-off families, you know, the, Kathy Hochul can make the argument that raising tuition is just keeping up with inflation, which is, you know, New York State, you know, compared to compared to Alabama, compared to um, even like Pennsylvania, the tuition, the in-state tuition rates are still better than if you even went across mm-hmm. the border to Pennsylvania. So, I mean, there's still great opportunity um, that's just kind of, you know, just to, just to combat your argument. But I wonder what, what you think about also too, we've seen the resources around Fredonia too. I mean, who, who, who wants to pay, you know, I've seen, I've seen the protests around campus about FSA having more options. We don't have the money. We need to raise more money. We so are. This is a quick, this is an easy way. Think about the four, the 4,000 students of Fredonia they each pay $300, you know, that's a quick um, $1.2 million, like right there, that could, that could easily pay for another dining service on campus, you know, improve classrooms in Thompson and other academic halls around campus, you know, and it's paid yeah. for. It's a good point. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's kind of the thing is like, I know, like, for example, like we're we're I think we're all like kind of like social democrats in that sense right now. But the the whole like paying your way into these programs and like having something invested, and also too like we don't want to we don't want to hurt the rich a little bit too much. Like this is this is kind of like where that whole argument comes to, and where Kathy Hochul like still wants to have Wall Street but still improve Main Street. You know, it's a constant balance. Um, but I also wonder too what you think about this thirty-four point five billion for public schools coming directly from the state. Is that an additional billion? Huh? Is that added on to what they're already doing? Um, no, that's the total budget. Oh, that's the total. Yeah. So it's a ten percent increase from the last um for the last public fund. Oh yeah, right. which is the biggest increase in history. Yeah. So I mean, and it's also two hundred fifty million for tutors in third grade to eighth grade to um equalize the funding so to make sure that um to make sure that you know during covid these people catch up and you know i kind of find it suspicious too that's third grade to eighth grade because if if you live in new york you know that's when you take the new york state test which kind of evaluates you know what schools get the proper funding so that that looks a little suspicious (laughs) interesting coincidence yeah. But I mean, the thing is, the 10% increase looks great. Um, I've seen, you know, in the state of the state, she kind of laid out more like what that would go to directly. I think a lot of um, a good chunk of it was going to, you know, having more school counselors, kind of mental health resources, too. She's made that a priority in that budget. Um, I think there was a little like diversity, equity and inclusion in there, which is always a good thing. Um, there's also just more resources there to pay teachers better, um, more resources for funding in classrooms. Um, you know, I just, it's like, here's, here's my like biggest qualm with it is that it's kind of just like throwing more money at the problem where 
I think this is the messaging problem that Kathy Hochul runs into because she tries to, you know, have this line sometimes where she wants to be in the complete center that she can't message effectively that it's, you know, that teachers are going to be paid more. She doesn't have a name for the program. It's kind of just like, oh, we're doing a budget increase in education instead of like where Ron DeSantis, you know, can officially can market, you know, like don't say gay. And it's like this amazing thing for all the conservative activists. Kathy Hochul, you know, can't come up with a new deal kind of framing for it, a new, you know, a new bargain for the teachers, for the students. You know, it's just it, a lot of people won't know that this increase happened at all. Um, mm -hmm. and Unless you like us and you. Well, even during her campaign in 2022, Zeldin kept attacking her on crime and she didn't really have a good comeback and she was just attacking him then on being too far right he's a trump supporter something that kathy hochel in particular doesn't do and a lot of politicians do this but her more so than usual she doesn't focus on her accomplishments and that much yeah even after the election i mean there's all these things in the budget if you're not actively studying the budget how are you supposed to hear them yeah and also to this is kind of, I want to save a little bit of this for the end of the episode, but we can go into this now because you brought up a really good point. There were, I mean, there was an article in the New York Post where right before election day, it was like, and this is anecdotal, so, but it's fun to talk about. Like there were four women who have always voted Democrat who were voting for Lee Zeldin um, because of the crime, because of the inflation. And I think this point is really interesting because from the 2022 midterms, we kind of said, you know, oh, abortion and election denialism was the biggest problems. But when when you look at New York State Republicans who ran congressionally, besides George Santos, <laughs> and and in the state house, um, very very few of them were election deniers in the state house. I actually don't know if any election deniers ran in the state house, but no, none of the Republicans who ran for Congress in New York State were election deniers. And a lot of them, like Mark Molinaro or Mike Lawler, um, wanted, you know, 15 weeks on abortion. So the polls that, you know, Chuck Todd was showing where it's like 80% of American people don't trust Joe Biden on the economy. I think we saw that come to fruit. We saw a pretty sizable red wave. And I think I think that kind of lines up with that line of thinking. I don't know if you disagree. No, that, that, makes, that makes perfect yeah, sense. That's just, and again, that's where I'm, I support, I support kind of maybe, I guess you could say the maximalist view of a bail reform and kind of, you know, on the principle that everyone, everyone should not have to go to bail for jail, no matter what your income is, no matter what you make. Um, and because it's based on income, disproportionately, Black people will get bail more than white people. Um, it's just a fact. It's been proven over and over again. So, and Kathy Hochul, you know, relayed the stats. Um, you know, maybe my stats are a little bit out of touch, but the 4% of people that get off on bail reform are repeat offenders. Um, again, it's just, it, it to me, it just seems like a no-brainer, but she's just having a really hard time of messaging. And to me, it's almost like the, the political cost of having bail reform is just too much now for the state of New York. Yeah. It's just become such a boogeyman that even if even if you show people the facts, again, it just doesn't hold well. So 
I'm wondering what you think about that, Alex. Um, well, I mean, we heard firsthand we had um, State Senator uh, George Borello come in to uh, to one of our classes, and he was talking about vow vow reform, and that that was um, that was an interesting experience for sure. But I think that messaging is is definitely somewhere where Kathy Hochul struggles, and I think that it's a little bit kind of touching back to like everything you just you touched on. It, it's a little bit of a an area of vagueness with her uh um because her messaging is is so off it's like it's like sometimes she'll be like very moderate centrist and sometimes she'll say something that's kind of like more left-wing it's like whoa i didn't expect that from her but there's <laughs> it's it lacks a little bit of consistency and and like like something like don't say gay where you have a name for it and you have like this mission you're working towards and like everybody can rally around it. I think that'd be really great. But we haven't really seen a lot uh, in that front from her yet. Yeah. I'm Yeah, I mean, do you guys have anything more to add about bail form? <laughs> um just I understand what the state was going for when they implemented it. I do think if it was handled correctly, it could have been really good. I don't think it was handled correctly, regardless of the messaging. Hmm. So what do you think about it? That was a, do you think judges not having discretion? Because that's what I think is the main problem is that these repeat offenders still get um, free bail and yeah. still get to go out. That's, if judges had discretion. Yeah, like if, if it's a one-time offender, sure. Repeat offenders should not just be getting free bail. Yeah. I think that's right. Yeah. But again, it's like also too, here's where I get a little distrusted on that issue is that you have to trust Republican judges to enforce this bail law. And even one time offenders probably won't get the free bail. They probably they think it's a communist idea. So that's that's that would be my argument against it, is that you you have to trust Republicans to come in good faith and enforce the laws of the executive. And we saw from Lee Zeldin, you know, he said he would fire Alvin Bragg on day one. Um, they, you know, they they absolutely do not want bail reform at all. So, um, anyway. Well, I know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hmm, what else do we have here to talk about? Uh, Medicaid. Went up to twenty seven billion, which I don't remember how much of an increase that was, but it was it's more than last time. Um, you know, what do we think about that? Yeah, I mean, five five percent increase to hospitals and nursing homes. Um, mostly that's where the money will be going to, which is kind of an interesting dynamic because I I didn't put it on a sheet, but I really wanted to uh, revert back to this. Um you know, the New York Health Act, you know, making single-payer health care in New York. And if you think about it, New York, New York is just a state, but it's the 10th biggest economy in the world, you know. Um, smaller economies have single-payer health care. For example, you know, Finland is a smaller economy. They have single-payer health care. We don't. Um, Switzerland, you know, is a smaller economy. They have single-payer health care. We don't. Um, so, I mean, it could be done in New York. The thing is, with, you know, Medicaid and kind of, you know, the Affordable Care Act is it's just throwing more money at hospital and nursing homes. It's it's kind of the same problem if you think about the free market and the government dilemma. It's the same problem that we run into with charter schools. And 40% of New Yorkers will be on Medicaid. And New York 
if Kathy Ogle was concerned about the the budget, in, in my opinion, she she wouldn't want to be subsidizing all these private health insurance companies like Excellus Cross Blue Shield in Buffalo, for example. She would, you know, make make healthcare a, a government entity where you cut the middleman out of it and we could save a lot on these drugs that you know we're using our Medicaid. We could save a lot of costs right now. Um also too, this was another um pork this is another pork spending thing for me, but one billion just for capital projects at hospitals, you know, like it's I don't know. It this is where because we, you know, we've talked about this before with Citizens United. We've seen the amounts of money that Kathy Hochul gets from, you know, the insurance lobby. And mm -hmm. I, it looks like they wrote this. There's stuff. your answer. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, literally. It's like. It's right there. Because there are super majorities in the Senate and the Assembly of people that have endorsed single payer health care. Um, you know, it's or there's a majority. There's not there's super majorities for Democrats. There's a majority that have endorsed it. Well, that happened in California, I want to say a year or two ago. Mm -hmm. It passed the state house overwhelmingly and then it made it to the state senate where it was the bill was never heard from again. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Which there's actually been a couple of interesting episodes on that. But again, it's just um it's two, it's also with bail reform, that's the politics behind um state health care. The rollout can be a little bit harder than expected, but I've. What do you think, Alex? On on which thing, dollar form or healthcare? I mean, either or. I mean, what do you think about some of the points that we made here? I mean, I mean, I, I like I said with single payer healthcare, it's a really great. That would be great if that happened in New York State, but I just. I don't know if the people of New York State are ready for it. And I don't know if the the state assembly and Senate are ready for it. I think it's still viewed as this sort of like pseudo-socialist, like you're moving too far towards communism by a lot of people. Uh and, and also there's a lot of people in the state who just wouldn't I don't know. They they would they would they'd probably definitely benefit from it. But the whole idea they'd be like, no, brother, that that's socialism. We don't we don't want that. You know. Right. I think it, this is yeah, I think the critique is like the machine of the Democratic Party isn't isn't ready for it, I think. Is that kind of what you're Yeah, well that that's what I'm getting at, yeah, is that the 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 Democratic Party and the state as a whole are just I, I think it, it would be great, but I don't I don't know if it we're ready for it or if we could handle it for now. Do you the think future, I'd love eight, ten years from now, like making steps towards single-payer health care in New York State, or, I mean, it's a, a far cry, but on a federal level, too, it, it'd be great, but I think mm -hmm. it might be before we get there. That's what we said eight, ten years ago, too, is that, oh, we'll, we'll push Obama left, you know, he got he got the Affordable Health Care Act done, you know, he, you know, we'll push him to do public option, you know, the individual mandate is great, and then the Supreme Court strikes it down. That could be another thing, too, is if the Supreme Court could strike down single payer health care if it was to pass in new york state massachusetts um it actually did happen in vermont for a couple of years but again it's like they they still kept private insurance so of course you're going to run out of money to fund it um that's mm -hmm. 
again, that's how, when I always talk to people who are like, oh, you know, Joe Biden threw around the number in the primaries, like, oh, it costs like 60 trillion over the next 10 years. Well, of course it will with private health insurance. And maybe that's, you know, that's also, you know, worsening the care. Um, we've seen, for example, you know, people in Canada come to New York to have elective surgeries because they can actually get it done in New York. Um, but again, it's like, this is the same idea that I have with bail reform too, is that you might, you might worsen the care a little bit, but everyone has access to the same care at the point. And if you ideally believe, you know, in some of these social democratic principles that should be a no brainer. I don't know. Do you think the voters are ready for a single payer healthcare option though? I would like to believe that a certain demographic I think Gen Z would go for it. Millennials would go for it. Yeah, Other in the city would go for it. Yeah, the problem is the other. I don't want to say the other people. Like they're yeah. like what I mean is that a lot of people wouldn't. A lot of people would be like the government's just giving you money, you know. Um, but I was, I was going to touch on something else. Let me give me a second to remember. I got a little bit of brain fog happening here. Yeah. But um, uh, oh yeah, when when you're talking about Michael, when you brought up public and private and we would have a ton of uh you know huge debt if we we did it while there was private insurance what do you think about uh deregulating private insurance and just going with fully a public option what What do you think about that just like like not 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 deregulation in the sense of you can do whatever you want deregulation in the sense of no more private health care that would not go over well with does, the voters. Does New York State not have a public option right now for healthcare? I thought they they have the market, no. right? I think they do. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just. I was just throwing hype. Do they have a public option? Um, oh no, I don't. I don't think they do. You know, no, it doesn't look like. I mean, again, it's like the public option is tough because then you're again you're. It's the same problem we run into with Medicare and why Medicare has gotten so expensive because it's the government subsidizing even more private insurance to make it free for the public. So that'd be even more money. That's kind of where, see, that's why I think the core tenement is you have to abolish the private health insurance companies so you can actually afford to do it. And again, that might... Yeah, that might decrease the standard of care, but if everyone has access to healthcare, that's that's what I think. Is, is that better though? If everybody has healthcare, but it's not as good. I'm. I mean, yeah. I mean, it, the only here's the thing though. If 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 you are richer and you elect for private, um, you can you could still pay for private insurance. I'm sure on this, you could you could pay for extra care like um they they have like in germany too you can still do i don't know because we've also seen too with like the nhs like hour and a half waiting time for an ambulance um yeah or like in some of these countries you know you have to wait a month to make an appointment which again shouldn't shouldn't seem like a bad thing for a checkup but you never know you know you twist your ankle or you bruise your elbow but the thing is too you have to you have to think about it too as in like um I don't know. There was a study that the average the average family would save. I think it was done by Public Citizen. The average family who makes like sixty thousand a year would save like twelve thousand, moving to uh, Medicare for all. Like the 
the main the main premise is that healthy healthy families who you know really don't get injured that often or healthy individuals they they would save the most money under this plan because they're not getting they're not getting screwed over by the insurance arm that wants them to pay all this money for the rainy day that's because when you cut out the middle man that would be that would be my biggest thing is that it it might it might look a little more dicier but then too we also run into a problem with america where if you can't afford the health insurance in the first place you don't get it you don't get the damn ambulance so i mean makes you wonder yeah Yeah. or you're in a hospital bed and then you're faced with a thirteen thousand dollar medical bill you know like it's tough it's what were you gonna say Oh, I was just saying it's tough. It's it's a it's yeah. a quant. I'm not sure what I think on it either. I think I I could I could lean either way. Because hmm. like sixty eight thousand Americans die every year from lack of healthcare. Like that's that's completely that those numbers are unrivaled by any other um, socialized medicine country. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> but. Oh, wow. Um, what if, I mean, most of these socialized med- medicine countries don't have 330 million people. I mean, you, you see the wait times in the UK or Canada sometimes. And then imagine like a hospital in like Chicago or New York and you've got like a, a year long wait time for something. Because it's just hypotheticals, but you could throw anything. I don't know about year long wait time, but I mean, it's. I mean the way you're you're right in a sense because when we look at Canada, a lot of the a lot of the um, the premiers or the the territories or the the states over there can't Probably. can't afford their own can't afford the like what was the stat like I think sixty percent of the federal government like pays for each of the states like the government healthcare system like the state. Like if New York State was to actually to try and implement like single payer, it would be really hard to, you know, actually, you know, keep on like finding the funding. If mm-hmm. because it's also too the system in Canada is much different from UK because UK it's government doctors. There's no private insurance, it's government healthcare. Where in the UK it's a it's a Medicare for all format where you still have private doctors and some private healthcare companies there too. So they still they still end up paying more for the treatment. So but anyways, I think I think we I think we can move on. What do you think? Yeah. Cool. Then we also too we had housing on this. So um first thing I wanted to touch on is there's no good cause eviction again, which has been a uh, driving um, bill that has been proposed by the DSA, which would make it so if if you pay your rent on time every month, you know, if if you pay your rent on time every month, you have no right to an eviction and you have no right for the landlord to raise your rent. Um, so, and also to one, one other thing I wanted to touch on is rezoning around subways and cities. This is actually really huge. Um, making it, I, it, when I read it on, um, I think it was, I forget where it was some like, um, I think it might've been like spectrum or something, but it was very vague 
but I, I wonder like if that, if that's going to be mixed use zoning or if it's just going to be like, um, higher, you know, um, you know, multifamily uh, residential zoning, or if it's actually going to be mixed use zoning, you know, which I'd much rather prefer. Um, I wonder, but I, I really like that we're rezoning those areas, you know? Um, yeah. But I wonder what you guys think about, you know, no good cause eviction or, um, you know, again, it's like for housing, this is like 1.3 billion in economic development, 1 billion for asylum seekers and uh, 800,000 new single family housing units constructed all across New York. Um, yeah. We, okay. I, two things. First of all, on the, uh, the no good cause eviction, I think that that's good. I'm not a renter, but I know that sometimes, you know, getting evicted at, uh, randomly, uh, <laughs> like no good reason, it can be really stressful, especially for somebody who's like working, uh, you know, paycheck to paycheck, like it's, it's families who are, anyways. Uh, and, then, and then moving on to the, uh, the 800,000 uh, family homes, I'm just, I kind of scratch my head at that because you drive around anywhere in rural New York. A lot of suburban New York, there's, there's just lots of like vacant houses, at least around in Western New York. There's tons of vacant houses. I mean, if I walked down the street, I would see probably a third of the houses in, in my town are, are vacant. And that's that's an example because it's a country town, but there's a lot of vacant homes. And I don't know if building single family houses is really what we need to focus on because, you know, a lot of people aren't living in like that traditional family model anymore. So I think that. I don't know. I, I think building more housing is always good, but there might be different um, different sorts of housing that they could be working on too. Besides, this is like strong arming, strong arming, strong arming people into moving back into rural New York. I mean, if if she's you, revitalized, yeah, because if you fluctuate the market with eight hundred thousand new single family housing units, and again, that just I mean, when I think about that, that's going to be mostly in rural areas. Like, you're not going to be able to build those in New York City. Um, there's just no land. Or, like, outside of Syracuse, Rochester, Buffalo, Albany. Like, these are mostly going to be in rural New York. I mean, if you build, like, nice, like, made in 2023, like, single-family homes next to the next to the $120,000 homes that were made in 1960 that are, you know, three bedrooms, two baths. I mean, I see them all the time in Cortland, um, in Fredonia, you know, even sometimes like, you know, closer to Ithaca, even, um, you know, th those are great prices for houses uh, compared to the rest of the U.S. where, you know, you get married, you know, you have children, you have um, $80,000 a year, single family income, you know, you both work like blue collar jobs. And um, this kind of, this is a little tough for me because if if you build all these new housing units next to the old ones, um, you're basically going to drive down the pricing, the prices of housing, um, which <clears throat> could be really bad for the real estate market too. But it's also, it's incentivizing so many people to live in, you know, these houses that are older are going to be worth like 80,000, 70,000. That again, could be people's retirements, people's, you know, pensions, you know, selling their houses. Um, so, yeah. and also the thing too, is like, 
the prices of the older houses are going down or they're not rising as much as they were, say, back in the 80s or 90s, because the economic opportunity is gone. We don't we don't need more single family housing across New York State. You don't need people to leave the city to go live in the rural areas. You need to build more affordable housing in the city where the economic opportunity is. That's just, you know, mm -hmm. that's like that's my Richard Florida brain talking, you know, freaking we need these urban areas to thrive. We need to cultivate them. So and the one point three billion in economic development is just a blue governor or a blue mayor handout. I mean, it's and again, it might it might go to some red mayors too, but most of it will go to, you know, Buffalo, we'll go to Syracuse, we'll go to Rochester, we'll go Ithaca, I mean Cortland, Fredonia, Dunkirk. I mean, cities that are kind of fledgling, you know, are kind of trying to survive. I don't know. What do you think about this housing policy? Me? Yeah. Oh, okay. Um, well, like I said before, um, I think that, you know, it's, it's, uh, I'm just trying to recollect my thoughts here. Uh, 800,000 new single family housing units constructed all across New York. Um, I, 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 I hadn't thought about what you said about the other, the flip side of it, which is that people are planning on selling these houses. Uh, Cause right now it's definitely more of a selling than buying market. But um, yeah. So I guess all that I'd have to say is that. Well, in upstate New York, it's not. I mean, upstate New York are some of the lowest house prices in, in this country, in the world, quite frankly. Um, you can, the thing is, though, it's like, what what job are you going to work in Fredonia? I mean, teacher, I guess that's like nice. Besides, you know, working at, you know, service jobs. I mean, that's that's the only jobs that are really available here, unless it's like, you know, mental health counselor, police officer, firefighter, like these are like 10, 20% of the jobs available. Most of them are service economy jobs. Just you're decentivizing economic development in the law and areas. That's, that's just what I think. I, I don't know. Unless, unless, you know, there's going to be a bigger manufacturing push in these areas, unless we're going to, you know, take the robots out of the factories and replace them with people again. <laughs> Like, but again, that doesn't make any economic sense. This is this yeah, that's tough. I mean, it, you can have plenty of housing, but if there's nothing for people to do, then what are you accomplishing, really? Yeah, I mean, Q, do you have any like really big thoughts about? I honestly don't know enough about it to comment on. Mm -hmm. I'd have to read up on it once. It just again, it just seems like you know. <laughs> New New York City is paying for the economic stabilization of upstate New York. These areas are just not creating wealth. They're just not. Again, just just seems like we're taxing it right out of New York City and spending it on upstate New York to keep it alive. When we should actually be moving the mines from New York City into some of these smaller cities, we should. Again, remote work, this is the perfect time. And Texas has capitalized on this. 
we've seen the brain drain from California to Texas. We've seen, you know, cities like Austin, Dallas, Houston grow. These are like, this is like the fourth industrial revolution. Like this is, these cities are growing and expanding and seeing more capital come to them. You know, that Pittsburgh too has kind of revitalized itself. And it's also too, in a sense, it's also the revitalization of public transit. Um, the average car bill right now in America is $700, $650 a month when you factor insurance and if you were to buy a new car. Insurance alone is $250, $300 a month. Uh, insurance alone is more expensive than, you know, a MTA pass for a month. So, <laughs> again, it just, I don't know, it just... It just it's if you're if you're a progressive, it just seems like bad policy on the economic development front. Mm -hmm. um, but again, you know, you have all these problems with, you know, rural New York not really wanting to assimilate to the, the city style or, you know, still having problems with diversity. I'm sure you I'm sure you go to a school board meeting. I'm sure, you know, there, there's still problems with integration across New York State. So, yeah, but I mean, we really want to touch on this too. Childcare, uh, seven point six billion over four years for childcare. Um, you know, it's a it's another increase again, which is going to make it so one hundred and thirteen thousand kids are now eligible for state subsidized childcare. Um, this is actually really interesting to me, but the uh, NYCCAP, which is the um, arm that you know subsidizes child care for families in new york state makes it a uh, free so universal um you have to make under eighty thousand for a family of four i think it was like eighty three thousand. that that seems like way way too low to me i don't know about you but what is what is the average child care cost per month for a family it's probably what 300 400 for a new family somewhere around there I couldn't think I couldn't think of a more perfect way to fight inflation than to raise that cap to 120,000, 130,000. If that's an extra billion or 2 billion, that's much better spent than on freaking economic development or even I would go as far as to say asylum seekers. Like if if you want to if you want to keep middle class families from not leaving New York City, give them an extra $300, $400 to spend every month. Show them how government policy can work for them. I don't understand why it's so strictly means-tested. I don't know. What do you think? Because mm. it's just, it just seems like a, a non-starter to me, unless, you know, she she really wants this budget surplus. The thing is, she wants to wait till 2024. I don't know why... This can't happen now. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. I, I feel like, yeah, the, there's other things we could be doing with the money that's going towards building more housing that might help these rural impoverished communities more. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like, I don't know, getting, getting more businesses moving into these places, which have seen massive loss in, on that front. You walk through like a small town, like around around where I live or around where we go to college, and there's just so many boarded up, empty, vacant buildings, just like with the houses. And it getting businesses to move back, um, 
along with getting more housing moved back would be would be good um yeah but i get what you're saying about the uh, yeah but too it's not even like a housing problem even in buffalo you know you can find you can find an apartment right now for 800 900 studio even one bedroom one bath i mean that's not it's still buffalo i mean it should in a city like buffalo it probably should be like a thousand two hundred a thousand three hundred well that's that's buffalo though i'm talking about like rural smaller cities and towns getting getting businesses to move into these not yeah. like a not like a quaint little village but like the smaller cities like like dunkirk for example places yeah. like that they could really benefit from having more uh you know businesses besides like applebee's and mcdonald's and walmart and them yeah i mean it's also too which we we've talked about before personally is the college too is such a big economic driver which we've seen in for you know decrease in size and yeah you know, even 10, 20 years from now, might not might not be here or might not be operating in the same capacity that it is now. Besides right. the college compared to the town it's in, it should be uh put this it should be generating a lot more income for the town than it is. Mm. Yeah, because you think about too, like me, I've talked about this before, like my when I I did a paper on um, the CUNY for all, um, making sure like public college is tuition free, but it goes much deeper than that too. It's also paying, having, I think it's like 70% of CUNY professors are adjuncts, like and only 30% are full-time. Mm -hmm. the, the big thing too, and she's made this point before on the bills, like having, having millionaires in Buffalo, you know, even the taxes we can pull out of them, it's kind of the economic drivers that professors are that um that you know even um you know higher educated people are you know they contribute more to their communities they're more likely to vote they're more likely to you know have more money to spend in an economy it just seems like you know college has always been that crux like everyone knows like it's a college town for donia but it's it's not like you know investors are going out of their way to come here you know yeah but it seems to be that's the only way to make the economy work you know unless again which we'll touch on actually we can move on to is kind of the 5.5 billion for climate change um i don't know it's it was kind of broad in the budget it just is 5.5 billion for climate change but it looks like, you know, it, it'll be like development projects across New York State to work on, you know, moving away from all or moving towards electric heaters, you know, electrifying uh, more wind power. I think um, solar power, stuff like that, more uh, construction projects, you know, kind of a mass mobilization. But again, this is like... Um, I think Kathy Hochul is really afraid of the framing on this issue because some people look at that and it's like, oh, it's a Green New Deal, brother. Like, they're the government is spending money to go work on climate change when other rich people won't spend money to go work on climate change. Like, why is the government doing that? But at the same time, that's also one of the issues where you have people on the other side of the aisle where they will throw, not, not throw, but they will put enormous amounts of money towards that. Hmm. What do you mean, put enormous amounts of money? Like, there are some people I'm 
in some ways, I would consider myself one of them. Climate change is one of the most pressing pressing issues facing us today. It needs all the money we can give it. Yeah, but it's also too like the five point five billion for climate change. I mean, um, yeah, climate change as a phrase for what the money's going towards is a little broad and vague. Yeah, I could. It it could be you know compartmentalized more. Mm-hmm. But what is the government? Is that when the government, you know, constructs that, are they going to own that? You know, will will businesses actually take advantage of that, or will we have to, you know, subsidize them, take even more advantage of that? You know, I I understand the climate change and look, the science, you know, it works when you, you know, try to electrify homes and get them off of heating. You know, Ithaca has been serious about this. They're going to be emissions free by twenty fifty. Um, but again, it's like. It just seems to be, you know, five point five billion for climate change. Will will the government own that power it produces, or will the private contractors build it, and then will it go to private companies? You know, mm-hmm. I I wonder because I mean, again, it's like too. Those are those are going to be good paying, even union jobs. I don't I don't want understand why she won't you know campaign on that. You know, if it if it's kind of too like. I've talked a lot about like the 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 higher education economy and like you know high higher paying higher education jobs. But if you want to you know win those middle votes, they don't believe that bullshit. They want more manufacturing to come back to these cities. That's an easy way to do that is through you know yeah again it's like you know people more activacy types you know pleasing them with you know progress on climate change. And people who are more in the center economically, you know, seeing more private and private contractors, you know, getting more jobs. I don't. That's that's what I saw in the, um, in the article on Spectrum News was just five point five billion for climate change, and then it was like we're gonna build more, you know, heat water pumps and more, you know, elect electrifying the grid and more wind and solar. That was really all outlaid. It was like a five or six sentences. Yeah, which that's great. But in some ways, I think I'm with Dan on this is, I mean, I'm also pretty concerned about climate change. And it's kind of a little bit sad that like something as small as that is like, like, yeah, that's great. Because we really need to be doing a lot more. Um, and it's going to come back and bite us when we're, you know, Kathy Hochul's age, we're going to be dealing with so much, so much more climate problems. But I digress. Yeah, I mean, it's also too, Buffalo will have the same temperature as Washington, D.C. Um, the Great Lakes won't freeze over um, when, when you know, in the year 2060, um, some estimates have shown. Like, I don't know. I mean, the, the other thing, too, you have to take into account is when, when, the, when the lakes are warmer, you know, and we do get that really bad, like, snowstorm that the 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 blizzards we will get will be even worse than the ones we saw recently in uh, 2022. You know, we had, I forget the final death count, but it was 20, 30 people that died. You know, it could it could easily be a lot worse than that um, 10, 20 years from it now. It will. It will yeah, be worse. It will be, yeah. So, I, yeah, I, I don't know. I, I think, um, I think it's also to... The 5.5 billion for climate change, like electrifying is good and all that stuff. But if you want to get serious about climate change, you need to move away from cars. And there's yeah. there's no effort from that. Um, there's no. And switch to electric. 
not gonna where's the electricity yeah. coming from it, it's you need to have new using alternative fuel sources such as like solar and wind um working on increasing those not replacing and phasing out coal and gas but working on but making those more integral to our energy system so that we you know are prepared a when fossil fuels run out and b to use these more renewable resources uh yeah, to try and your, uh, when you charge your electric car when you plug it in where where is the where's the power grid exactly yeah. exactly that's why you have to have it has to come from a different source because just yeah. switching to electric this this argument and maybe i'm i'm misreading it a little bit when people are just like oh buying an electric car is so much better well yes but no because you plug your like you said you plug your car in it's coming from the same electric that your microwave your fridge all that stuff is you know getting powered from so it's oh, a good cool. cause good cause but it it's not as I don't think it's as you're low on lower on emissions too, but you're still using still using power grid energy. So yeah, I mean but, I think yeah I think we can move on to yeah. you want to talk about these a thousand more psychiatric beds. I mean that's great. I mean we oh. you, I I I don't remember what podcast it was that we listened to, but um they had a guest mm -hmm. on who was um how there was like the the number of psychiatric beds has gone down drastically in the past like 50 years and 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 i mean i know people firsthand who have like waited for days to get in to see like a like a, a psychiatrist like in waiting rooms sleeping on chairs and stuff and we need to work on our uh, how we work on mental health in in the country and on the state in general so i think that's great yeah um, i think it was i'm all for that it was the Weeds podcast where actually in New York State they passed a bill because someone someone got denied someone got a woman got denied a psychiatric bed because they were too full and then she went onto the train tracks of the subway and then that's how she died because she couldn't get a psychiatric bed. So there was the there New was York another case where somebody. Um, was like came into like a psychiatrist and was like i need help i feel like i'm gonna hurt somebody i need help and they were like sorry we can't help you because they thought he was more coherent that, that's just that's bad that's yeah. anyway like that's bad yeah also one billion for mental health um so again it looks like um that could also too like mental health along with climate change could be a bigger driver for economic growth especially in smaller areas because it's again, it's another industry that we could build up. Yeah, and it's also it's more higher education jobs. Um, also, to another thing, we just want to touch on one of these last uh, criminal justice things was bail reform. Uh, we're kind of circling back a little bit. She wanted to give judges more tools to use discretion when they see fit. Um, we, in general, I think that's a good thing for the most part. Yeah, mm. but for the most. Yeah, for the most part. I mean, if you wanted to add anything on that, Alex. No, I think I'm good with bail reform. Cool. And then uh, last thing we got, taxes and inflation. So um, 
this is kind of interesting. $200 million is going to go to New Yorkers to save on their energy bill. Now, um, Kathy Oakle outlined that it, it will be uh, means tested for, you know, families. I don't know if it'll be like the child care means test or the Excelsior scholarship means test, but it will be means tested. So that's, that's again, an easy way to save on inflation. You know, it's a, it's a great tool. I mean, at this point, it's like, it's 200 million, like, I don't care if it benefits like, you know, big gas or anything. You have to think about the consumer first. So, I mean, yeah. we'd like to see more antitrust action, but it's an immediate fix that works. Um, mm. Then, of course, we had, this is big, the three-year extension of the wealth tax, as it's known in New York State, the Cuomo tax. Uh, he raised it from 6.5 to 7.25% on New Yorkers, making over $1 million a year. Um it was supposed to expire after this year. Kathy Opal extended it to three years. Um, a lot of progressive wanted to make it permanent. Um, no income tax raises uh, for all New Yorkers. Again, uh, it's a beautiful thing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but uh, pretty much um, great thing. $8.7 billion budget surplus. Uh, she's looking to bring it up to $20 billion. Uh, to starve off losses in population. I'd be um, very interested to see how she does that. Because mm -hmm. that's more than doubling the surplus. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That'll be she wants to do that by 2024? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So she can, that's great. But I'd be, I'd be very surprised if she did. <laughs> I No, I think she has a clear route. Um, I think, um, which McCall, it's also to... Keeping, keeping this tax increase um, gives her like an extra um, billion dollars a year too. It's also, um, where can I think she'll get some more revenue? Um, God, what can I think? Oh, these, these payroll taxes too might raise a little bit more income. But again, it just, it seems like, I don't know how big the budget surplus was before this year. That's the thing to see how, like how, to see how much it's like incrementally grown, but I, I, I think she'll get there. I mean, what do you think, Alex? I don't know. I, I honestly can't say. Hmm. I, I do think I, the surplus will increase somewhat, but twenty billion. I don't think it'll get there. At least not twenty twenty four. No, I think. I don't know. I think it will because if she. I'm I'm thinking after this year, you know, she doesn't spend more on Medicaid. She doesn't spend more on um, she doesn't spend more on childcare. Um, I'm sure that like um, for example, like bail reform. If she gives judges more discretion and more people actually pay for their bail, um, that'll that'll raise some money. Um, One billion for asylum seekers is kind of interesting for me because that's like. She wants to starve off population loss, but she wants to accept more asylum seekers. So I I don't know like her framing of to starve off losses in population, like or stave off, my bad. Um, is she like does she think the economy is just gonna keep contracting? That's kind of interesting. She's like playing defensive before, you know, anything's even happened. Mm. It's a it's an interesting strategy to me. But again, it's also like a budget surplus. Like I also wonder too, like how much how much money did Albany get from the American Rescue Plan? 
cynically, I'm thinking like, hmm, so how do we get 8 billion budget surplus in the first place? <laughs> hmm, seems fishy to me. Huh. 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 But last point, uh, April 1st is when the budget is due. Uh, as our favorite professor says, it will not get done by April 1st. Uh, they are late every year. Um, and what's really interesting to me is um, even the speaker and Senate leader might uh, quibble with Hochul. Um, even Carl Heisty has said, who is the assembly speaker, that charter, raising the charter school cap is a non-starter. So these are people, you know, that, I mean, I guess he's endorsed by the Working Families Party, but he's not really Working Families Party. He's just a New York Democrat. Um, he's even having problems with Kathy Hochul's program. And even like the Senate leader too, like this is not even related to the budget, but she said she does not want to see Hector LaSalle come to the Senate floor. If he can't pass committees, he shouldn't go to the Senate. So again, I, I wonder what you think about that. It'll be interesting. Like I mentioned before, um, it seems like Kathy or Governor Hochul has a lot more um, a lot more of a moderate agenda in some cases and a lot less support on the New York Democrat wings, like like you just like you just highlighted. So it'll be interesting to see come April 1st how um, how those discussions go and what sort of if any concessions have to be made by either side. It'll be it'll be interesting. Right. Because it's almost like the history of Kathy Hochul is kind of like the history of Joe Biden. It's, it's kind of an ugly one. I mean, we've seen, you know, the, the famous clips on Twitter of her, like saying, you know, denying um, driver's license to um, undocumented immigrants was okay. She had an ANR rating from Congress when she was in there. Um, you know, Cuomo brought her in to stand up to the left. Um, when, you know, the IDF was in the New York state legislature, the independent Democrats who, you know, ended up getting extinct, um, ended up all of them lost their primaries to um, working families party members. Um, and to, so, to be fair, though, when she was in Congress before Cuomo asked her to join his ticket, she was running a very Republican district. It's the same one that Chris Collins would later represent. Mm. Mm. What is that? Is that an R plus? Um, twenty around there. Back yeah. then, I think it was R plus nine, ten. Mm. So, I mean, she, you know, I could be wrong on that though. Yeah, she, um, so she did run and run an R plus ten district. I don't, I don't know if that warrants an A rating from the NRA, but um, I mean, undocumented immigrants. That's probably, you know, she had to take tough stances on those. But even like the 2020, the 2022 governor's debate, you know, they asked her what her favorite book was. And she said the Bible. I mean, how many how many Democrats would say that nowadays? You know, she's kind of she's cut from an older cloth. Um, you know? And like you said, it's the same sort of there's a lot of Joe Biden esque energy to her, her background and her. I mean, the performance in her debate, too. It was just like. There's a lot of parallels there. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've, it's, it's it's definitely going to be an interesting fight. And um, who knows, maybe we'll make another episode two months from now talking about all the things 
progresses we're able to get from her because I'm sure a lot of a lot of these things are a non-starter, which is also circles to the last point I wanted to make is the role that Republicans might play. Um, actually, they have like 30, 40 seats in the legislature, I think. So, I mean, if 30 or 40 Working Families Party and DSA members got together and said, no, we don't accept tuition increases. No, we don't accept raising the charter school limits. Um, stuff that they are very opposed to if 30 or 40 republicans would would vote for this budget which again has a lot of pork barrel spending in it that a lot of republicans would not like but would they would they would they slice a deal with kathy hochel would we see great bipartisan compromise in albany that would be a sight to see that would be a sight you're right i mean if you guys if you guys uh, don't know where to get information on the New York State uh, Assembly and Senate, they have great websites. Um, I know the Senate has a YouTube page. I'm sure the Assembly does too. But um, I think I think we can wrap up this episode. We kind of covered all our bases. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. This was this was a lot of fun to talk about. Uh, the federal politics sometimes don't get as much coverage as the state politics. But as um, Justice Brandeis put it, you know, states are the laboratories of democracies, you know, and we see we see the beginnings of both parties, you know, come from state policy. So, again, we want to thank Dan for being on the podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. And, um, you know, thank you for joining me. See you next episode. See you guys.